Uh, we are continuing our series in the Psalms today. We've been walking through the Psalms all summer. And last week and this week are kind of a two-part series within a series. Kind of a, a one-two punch about how we deal with our sin. About how you and I deal with our, our guilt and shame and the regrets and the shortcomings uh, that all of us have. Um, that every single person in the world has to face. And last week we looked at Psalm 32 and we talked about confession and forgiveness. And this week we're looking at repentance and healing. And our psalm today actually comes out of a specific incident in the life of a guy named David. Now, if you don't know, David was a hero in the Old Testament. He was a warrior, he was a poet, he was a great king. But mostly, David was known for having a deep love for God. He was called a man after God's own heart. He loved God so much that God said, this is a man after my own heart. His heart deeply loves me. And yet in our psalm today, we encounter David not at a high point, but at perhaps the lowest moment of his life. But before I remind you of the story, let me ask you to consider this question. I want you to just think for a minute why the Bible tells us this story. Why does the Bible highlight David's sin in this way? Why does the Bible take a hero like David, a man of faith like David, and the Bible does this with all of its heroes, by the way, but certainly with David. Why does the Bible take a man like this and say, let me full on show you in 3D his greatest sin and his biggest shortcomings? Is it so that we can say, wow, that was really bad? I mean, I've never done anything that bad. If David is called a man for God's own heart and he did that, then I must be doing pretty good. Does the Bible tell us this story about David so we can compare our sin to his? What do you think? No, obviously not. The Bible is saying something else. The Bible is telling us here this. If a person as great as David, as talented as David, as smart as David, as blessed as David, if a person who loved God as much as David is capable of this kind of sin, then maybe I am too. If David's life needed the healing of repentance, then maybe, just maybe, I'm in need of the same. Here's what happened. It was the spring, the time of year when David was usually at war with his men, but this year he stayed home. And while he was home, one afternoon he saw across the rooftops a beautiful woman bathing, and so he sent some of his servants to inquire about her. He discovered that her name was Bathsheba, and she was the wife of Uriah, one of his men. And in spite of this fact, David sent for her. He slept with her and then, in an unexpected twist, soon found out that she was pregnant. So now David is is forced to act and in an attempt to cover his tracks, he sends for Uriah to be brought home from the battlefield with the hopes that he'll sleep with his wife and the child in her womb will be thought to be his. Problem solved. But Uriah won't oblige. You see, in sharp contrast to David, Uriah says... How could I sleep with my wife in the comfort of my own bed while my brothers are off fighting and battling and sleeping on the ground? And so Uriah won't even go home. 
So David's plot moves to phase two. He invites Uriah over to get him drunk with the hopes that if Uriah's in an inebriated state, he'll succumb to his fleshly temptations and go home to be with his wife. But Uriah still refuses. So now David is forced to take even more drastic measures. He sends Uriah back to the battlefield with instructions for his general, Joab, to put Uriah on the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest and then, in that moment, for the men to draw back from him so that he will be struck down and killed. And this is exactly what happens. Uriah is killed. And with his death, David thinks his secret, his sin, has died as well. And for a while, it seems that it has. That is, until Nathan, one of David's closest companions, shows up one day and tells David a story. I'll read it to you from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan came to David and said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. One of the most devastating sermon applications in the history of the world. You are the man. And it's from this incident, from this confrontation out of this moment in David's life that our psalm comes to us today. Psalm 51. Repentance that heals. How do you go from devastation and sin on this level to a place of healing and restoration? David will teach us this in this psalm. Roland, would you read Psalm 51 for us? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you were right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful of birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God, my Savior, 
and my tongue will sing of your, your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thanks, Roland. Today we're talking about repentance that heals, and I want to give you four things. Uh, The first that we learned today from our psalm is repentance that heals engages deep relationships. You see, what scholars tell us is that there are at least nine months, probably more, between the time when David sleeps with Bathsheba and when Nathan confronts him. There's a lot of time here, and I've been thinking this week a lot about the time in between, the time before this psalm was written, all those days and weeks and hours and months when David sat alone with his sin. And I've been wondering this, how often during that time period... Did David think about coming clean? We know that he was moaning and aching for intimacy with God that he was missing. And I wonder how many times did David decide to confess? Did David determine to turn his life around and get back into a right relationship with God only to not take a step forward? How many times did David sit in a worship service and resolve to do it on his own? And here's the point. We don't know, but he couldn't. He couldn't do it on his own. He needed someone else. Friends, I'll make this point quick, but it is so important. Do you have a Nathan in your life? People you can trust to tell the truth to. People that have access and permission to tell the truth to you about you. You know, last week we talked about confession, the power of confession. And the Greek word for confess is the word homologeo. And homologeo simply means this, to say the same thing. To confess in the Bible is just that the thing that you say is the same thing as the life you have lived. That the words you speak match the actions you have put into place. You see, a Nathan relationship is one where what you say about your life to them, where what they say about your life to you is exactly the same as how you've lived your life. Do you have a Nathan in your life? Someone you can be fully open and transparent and vulnerable with. Someone that can tell you the truth and someone you can tell the truth to. And I, I'm asking you this question very pointedly because here's the, here's the thing. This will not just happen. You will not accidentally or suddenly or by happenstance end up in a relationship like this. Nathan's will not just float into your life. You must engage. That word engage is chosen very specifically here. You must be purposeful and intentional about cultivating this kind of relationship because guess what? What what Nathan does here, it's not easy. It's not fun, it's not simple or enjoyable to constructively help someone see their sin. So I'll ask you again, do you have a Nathan in your life? And let me just say this real quick. If you're not sure, the answer's no. 
If there's not a person that, that, that comes to mind instantly that you meet and talk with regularly who you have explicitly given permission to to encourage you and challenge you and help you grow, if there's not a person in your life that you instantly say, yep, that's my Nathan, it's this person, then guess what? You don't have one because you can't almost have a Nathan. You can't kind of have a Nathan. You either have one or you don't. And, and married people out there, let me say this as a quick aside. I hope... Your spouse is a Nathan for you. I also hope that you have at least one Nathan beyond your spouse. Because sometimes friends can see and say and challenge you on things that your spouse simply can't. Do you have a Nathan? And just by way of sort of letting you in on an opportunity that's coming. We believe in this so deeply here at Cedar Mill that this coming fall, we're going to walk together through the book of James. We're going to kind of, as an entire church, go through this wonderful book in the New Testament. And we're going to ask every single one of you, along with kind of walking through that book corporately with us, to walk through it with a mentor, with someone who you can be open and vulnerable and transparent with, someone who can be a Nathan-like person for you. And so if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I don't have a Nathan, let your wheels start turning. Be thinking about who you might ask, who you might open your life up to and say, I want to give you permission to speak truth to me and challenge me and help me grow into the person that I believe God longs for me to be. It's point number one. Repentance that heals engages deep relationships. Point two, repentance that heals explores deep understanding. Last week we talked about the power of seeing our sin, and David certainly does that in this psalm. He sees his sin. He sees it from God's perspective. He says, I have done what is evil in your sight. God, I can, I can see what my actions have done from your perspective. But I'd argue this. The focus of this psalm is that David doesn't just see his sin, he sees deeper than his sin. He knows there is something much deeper happening here than just what he has done. He sees underneath his sin. And this incident, I would argue, forces him to do that. Why? Because do you know who Uriah was? Uriah was one of David's truest and best friends. The man whose wife David sends for and sleeps with, the man who David has killed, murdered on the front lines of the battlefield, it was one of David's truest and best friends. Uriah was one of the 37 men who went out into the wilderness when Saul was trying to kill David when he was younger. Uriah is a guy who risked his life so that David could live and become king. David does this thing not to just some random guy, but to Uriah. And so in this psalm, David is not just dealing with the fact that he did this, but that he's the kind of person capable of doing this. He's dealing with this reality. I'm the kind of person who does this sort of thing. I'm the kind of person who could do this again. This came out of me. You see, David has been forced to get in touch with not only what he's done, but why he's done it. He says in verse 5, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You see, he's realizing something. He's realizing, I have a nature, a propensity to sin that isn't just 
external, but that it, it lives and dwells and resides deep inside my soul. This is why David says, God, not just forgive me for what I've done, he says, create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do something deep inside of me to fix what is wretched and wrong and rotten in my soul. David is saying, it's not just that I accidentally did something wrong. Oops, I slept with that lady. Where did that come from? No. He's saying, something in my soul is misaligned. My desires are out of whack. The loyalties and priorities of my heart are all messed up. He's recognizing this, and so he says, against you and you only have I sinned. He's talking to God. Against you, God, and you, God, only have I sinned. Now, maybe you're like me when you first read that, that line. You kind of have a visceral reaction to it. And you know you're not supposed to have a visceral reaction to things in the Bible, but you do, and you're trying to suppress it. Well, I'm just going to say, I, I can understand. I have the same initial reaction. Because you're thinking, what? Against God and God only? Has David sinned? No, no, that's not true. What about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about all the people under David's leadership who've been harmed and hurt by this terrible act of destruction that he has kind of stepped into? But you have to understand what David's saying here isn't, you know, I didn't wrong anyone else. He's not saying, I didn't wrong anyone else, only you, God. That's not his point. What he's saying is, the reason I did this terrible thing underneath it all, deep down behind it all, is that my heart did not have you, God, as Lord of my life. He's saying something else had taken over the spot that was rightfully yours. Lust had become my Lord. Desire became Lord. Reputation protection had become my Lord. And ultimately, he's saying, I became my own Lord. I became God for me. You see, here's the thing about sin. You've got to look past it. You've got to look underneath it. Because the sin of adultery in this case, the sin of murder, the sin of lying and manipulating and spinning the truth came out of the deeper sin in David's life. The sin of saying, God, I don't trust that you know what's best for me. I think I'll just take it from here. I know what's best for me in this moment. God, maybe you're not enough for me. Maybe you are holding out on me. Maybe I need something more. I'll take control of my life. I'll be God. Maybe I need something more, God. Maybe I need this woman or this relationship. Maybe for you it's something else. Maybe it's, and God, I need this money or this drug or this promotion or this position or this little high that comes from gossip. That little spark of adrenaline that runs through my soul when I tear somebody else down so that I can feel better about myself. Friends, the question here is... What competes with God to be Lord of your life? In the places you are tempted to sin, what is the thing underneath that sin that is guiding and leading your heart in that direction? Maybe, maybe it's a belief that money equals security. And so because of that, you're tempted to be greedy. You're tempted to skimp on your giving to find security in your savings account. Maybe there's a deep-helded Belief that sex equals fulfillment. And so you're willing to color outside the lines in this area. You're willing to say, God, I know what's best for me here. I know what I need. You don't know what I need. You're not enough. And so I'm just going to dabble a little bit on the side with some extra things. I'll decide what's okay for me. Maybe underneath your sin is the idea that to be liked or accepted or esteemed by others gives you value. And so you do things to gain approval. You're willing to say, God, your approval doesn't quite do it for me. 
But you say about me, Lord, that's not enough, and so I'll take matters into my own hands. Here's the point. Just like David, there is something underneath your sinfulness. There's something driving it, pushing it forward. Repentance that heals, explores deep understanding, seems to go beyond just the act, down into the question of why did I act that way? What is challenging God for the place of God in me? Next, repentance that heals employs deep solutions. You see, David understands that if the problem is deep, then the solution to the problem must also be deep. One thing we see in this passage is that David never does sin management. You notice that? He, he never asks for desire reduction. He doesn't say, Lord, please, please, please take away my lust. Take away my desire for beautiful women. Take away my tendency to lie. Lord, take away my desire to manage my own image. No, he never says that. He never even talks about his sinful desires. Instead, he says in verse 12, Restore me to the joy of your salvation. He says, don't take away my desires for the wrong things. He says, remind me that there is something I desire more, that there's something my soul needs more. He says, don't just help me turn from sin, but help me turn to you. You know, the Greek word uh, for repentance is the word metanoia, and it was actually a Roman military word. And it simply meant this, about face. Metanoia. About face. Uh, Roman military officers would yell out, about face. And the soldiers would all turn 180 degrees and start marching in the opposite direction. You see, this is why when Jesus comes, he says, repent. You know, we think of repent as like a, you know, a, a southern preacher's word. But it's actually a Jesus word. <laughs> repent. He says, turn 180 degrees. Except for Jesus' focus is not what you're turning from, it's what you're turning to. Jesus says, repent. Why? Because your sin is so awful and bad and ugly and vile. No, he never says that. He believes that it's true, but that's not the focus for Jesus. Jesus says, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven has come. It's available to you. And what he's saying is this. Don't just turn away from your sin, but reorient your life towards something greater than your sin, towards something better than your sin, towards something more satisfying and promising and full of hope and love and peace and joy than the thing you were walking towards before. He says, why would you give your life to something when the kingdom of God is available? Turn towards it. Turn towards towards a, a greater desire, a better desire, something that will satisfy your soul in a way the thing you were walking towards before never can or will. Repent, because retirement will disappoint. If you're living your life for retirement, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because there's some good parts about it, I'm sure. I'm not retired yet. It looks kind of fun. But I'm not going to give my soul for it. Repent, because the American dream is empty. Just ask rich people who have it all and still feel empty. Repent because popularity is fleeting. Repent because sex and drugs and pleasure will not ultimately satisfy. Repent because life with God, the the life that He offers you, is something that this world never can or will. Repent and turn towards something that your soul actually needs and longs for that will last now and forever and to all eternity. 
Here's the point, friends. I'll cut right to it. Your heart will never be able to detach from sin unless you attach it to something better, something greater, something stronger. Because here's the deal. The sin was there for a reason. The sin was there to fill a hole. That sinful desire existed to meet a need that your soul had. And if that need doesn't get met, if that thing is taken away, that desire is taken away, and the hole is left empty, it will get filled again. And chances are, it won't be long before you're back to your old ways. You see, unless you bring God in, there may be momentary relief, but there will never be deep healing. So the question is, have you shifted your desires, not just away from sin, but towards God? Are you finding joy in the knowledge of being loved and accepted and forgiven and embraced and adopted by Jesus? If not, it is just a matter of time before your soul looks for satisfaction elsewhere and in something that will ultimately disappoint you. Repentance that heals employs deep solutions. And finally, repentance that heals empowers deep ministry. Listen to what David says here. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. You see, what we find at the end of the psalm is now David is ready to be used. Now that he has acknowledged his own fallenness and brokenness and weakness... Now he's ready to be used. Now God can use him to do really great kingdom work in the lives of other broken, hurting, desperate, sinful people. You see, this is where the gospel and the world are are so different. The message is actually quite opposite. The world says, when you are strong, you can be used. The gospel says, my power is made perfect in weakness. The world says, When you are blameless, when you have a perfect record, then you can be used. Then we can vote for you. Then we can trust you. Then we can elect you, right? When you're this perfect, spotless person. So hide all your sin. The gospel says, no, it's when your sin's on full display. That's when you can be most useful to me. The world says, Clark Kent has to become Superman to save the world. The gospel says, God has to become a man. Superman has to become Clark Kent to save the world. The gospel says what looks like defeat and stripping yourself down and admitting the worst and admitting you're a sinner, repentance, the thing the world says will destroy you is actually the way to resurrection. It's actually the way to life and peace and hope and joy. Here's the point, friends. The place of your greatest weakness, your greatest struggle, your most shameful sin even, might just be the place God wants to use you to help others might just be the redemption story God is after in your life. And one of the powerful places we've seen that in our church is in a ministry that we partner with here called Fairhaven. This is a ministry where God has taken fallenness and brokenness and deep sin and struggle and through repentance used it to bring hope and healing into the lives of countless people. And so here's my hope and prayer this morning. My hope and prayer is that as we share this story, it will inspire repentance that heals in your story. That this story will give you courage to face the sin and struggles in your life in ways that don't just bring healing to you, but that God can use to help you bring healing to others in the world. 
So take a few minutes with me. Let's enjoy this story if you turn your attention to the screens. I was raised very dysfunctional. And because of that, I became an addict and a serious alcoholic. First alcohol, then meth. And um, had there been a place like Fairhaven, I don't think that the trauma would have been as bad. Fairhaven Recovery Homes is a clean and sober home that um, was put on my wife and my heart to help people that were struggling with alcohol and drug addiction. It gives the addict who has hit rock bottom and has decided to turn their life around an opportunity to do so in a home setting environment. Me and Yaya finally had a safe room to be in um, where there was other women who were struggling with addiction and who were willing to love me and support me when I couldn't. We do let them know up front before they come in the home that we are Christian based and we do pray and we do have Bible studies and all that, but you don't have to be Christian to come in there, you know, you just have to have the desire to not use alcohol and not use drugs and want to live in the life and we present it through the Christian values of what the Bible says. The, the news got out that we had a recovery home and we stayed full so we got another one and that filled up and we got another one and, and each house John and I would move into and we would raise up a mentor in it. I was a, a meth addict and alcoholic and uh, used and drank for 23 years and uh, towards the end of my my addiction. I used to fantasize about getting clean and sober, but my willpower was shot. And I met up with Todd Andrews. He was the mentor at Fairhaven at the time. He stood up, gave me a hug, and says, welcome home. I walked in. It was a beautiful house. Um, not what I ex expected. I thought, you know, total chaos, because that's what I was used to. I needed a place with structure, stability, and accountability. Because without those things, uh, I'm just back to where I was, you know. When I started admitting that I was weak and that I wasn't perfect, it got, it got a lot easier. We know that if everybody made a bad choice and relapsed and we kicked them out, houses would be empty, the streets would be full of people using and drinking. So we knew that wasn't the answer. We also knew that if we allowed them to continually do that in our homes, then we're going to have homes that people are using and drinking. So we had to figure out where the fine line is. If you have a relationship with somebody, and you understand them and you get to know them, that's where the healing is at. If you're always accusing and pointing the finger, they're never going to make it. Go home. I've never been a sober mom until I came here. And so I've learned routine with the kids. Um, I've learned a lot of parenting skills. The love that Kathy has for us is like, I can't even explain it, it gives me like the chills, like being here, the way that she she prays for each and every one of us every day. She's always there if we have a hard time. She's always there to help us if we have conflict, to settle it. Well, the number one thing that I love is our morning devotions to the Lord because it sets my day's tone and walking through my addiction and not being tempted to go out and use because I know I have the Lord's shield and armor and I have... Um, women here that pray for me and that pray for my struggle and that help me through that struggle, that help me with my daughter when she becomes too much or 
when I just need a little break. We're hoping to be a resource for them, that a stepping stone that they could come in and, and live a new life and even possibly raise up and become a mentor. I'm able to meet people that come into you know, my home today just, you know, are beaten down and just, you know, don't see any value of themselves. And I'm able to meet them right where they are and, you know, say, hey, you know, I've been there. And you know what, I'm looking at you right now and I see value. You know, I show them that value and I'm able to see their growth. We have a big dinner at one of the houses every Friday night and it's an open invitation for anybody at Fairhaven to come to it. Come to the dinner, we have praise and worship, we sit down and watch a video. Let's come in fellowship and let's get to know one another and let's, you know, bond. Let's bond because that's what's going to keep the addict from going back out there is the relationship. As you can tell, we're here with two of the stars of that video. Uh, John and Candace Liebert's here. And also joining us this morning, uh, we're honored to have your honor here. Uh, one of the judges from the Beaverton Municipal Court. We're here with uh, Judge John Mercer, who not only has been on the court for 20 years as a presiding judge, but he's also on the board at Fairhaven. So we'll talk with the judge in just a moment. But for starters, would you... You okay with that? <laughs> For starters, John and Candace, maybe just a one-minute snapshot of what life was like before you started following Jesus. Um, so for me, life was very dark. I was living a criminal life, lying, stealing, um, using drugs, um, entering the spiritual world, seeing things that um, nobody should see. And for my wife... Um, Along with the drugs and alcohol, there was uh, trauma and abuse, very dark. So obviously, that was a life you guys didn't want to continue, but wanting to change isn't enough, is it? No. So how, what, what, what uh, prompted the change eventually? Jesus. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> um, um, for me, it was divine intervention because I had tried everything that I knew to um, stop going to prison for 10 years. Um, just everything and I couldn't stop and so for me it was divine intervention Candace how about you well I was a drug addict and an alcoholic and it was Jesus when I was 23 it was divine intervention yeah. but after 23 things didn't go that smoothly well I raised my kids in Georgia in a little southern church back there and, um, and then came a trauma which put me back into a bad state, and it, it landed me up here in Oregon. I was taken from, you know, from from my mentor down there to somewhere up here where I knew nobody, and I ended up in a tent, yeah, um, just a old vagrant woman digging for cans, meth addiction, you know, lost all my teeth, the shame. Covered me, you know, Salem Mental Hospital for uh, suicide, and just it was awful. 
So you met Jesus again, and uh, and then you met John. Well, I, you know, I seen the need when I was in that addiction. God showed me the need, and I uh, felt the need, and I became that need. Very good. So, yeah. so go ahead, John. Were you going to say something? Yeah, she met me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 Dave talked about this in the sermon about the importance of repentance, true repentance, leading to a ministry that can help others. So, how did Fairhaven come about? So about 10 years ago, um, I had a recovery home. It was my recovery home. And, um, and I had been praying for a godly woman. Um, and I met her at, you know, at a um, Bible study, a recovery meeting. And so we started to get together. And the Lord came to us and said, Okay, John, it's time for you to move over and let me run this fair haven. And that was a moment for me because I thought it was all about me. <laughs> and it was all about him, and that was the time that I really had to get to know him and, and realize, you know, who he was and who I was not. And the beautiful thing is, it started with one home, and now you have 14 homes, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so right now there's 140 men, women, children. That are um, clean and sober today at this moment. That's awesome. Great. Well, Judge, let's bring you into the, the conversation here. You've seen Fairhaven uh, from the bench and what, uh, what has transpired there. Tell us about your perspective from the bench's view. Well, thank you. Uh, I uh, got attracted to Fairhaven as, as an option because of a court program we have through the municipal court for people in addiction to try to uh, uh, help. Uh, and it's called our Be Sober program. Uh, I, I, I don't know whether I should ask people to raise their hands or not, but I would expect that the answer to this question, if people raised their hand, would be over 75% of you will raise your hand. Whether your family has been touched by alcoholism or addiction in, in, in either children or parents, uh, and, and most people, even in churches, the answer is yes, uh, let alone friends, coworkers, and expanding the zone. And we saw that through our court program and saw that uh, telling people to get help didn't work. You have to be able to show mercy rather than judgment. And I teased Doug at the last uh, session that uh, he said you have to hit rock bottom. Well, one of my gifts is the ability to help people get to rock bottom. (laughs) uh, uh, But that doesn't sustain it. Uh, um, The only way that repentance can really lead you to recovery uh, is uh, that it's sustained. And the only way you can sustain repentance is accountability. And you have to have accountability in a relationship with other people. And that's what uh pastor was indicating. The addict uh, has um, uh, everything going against them because of the way the substance has changed them in their brain, in their way of thinking, in their view of themselves, lost their health, lost their job, lost their uh, uh, family, uh, and they even uh, can't even see themselves other than through the eyes of shame. Uh, and that repentance isn't enough. It starts you on the right path where God can heal all of those things uh, and can restore you to a ministry even. Uh, so when we encounter these people in our court system, if, uh, if they're willing, they don't have a place to live, they're living in their car, they're living in a tent, they can't stop addiction to get them into treatment, 
but also uh, solve some of their more basic needs and then get them into clean housing and just coincidentally where they could maybe hear the gospel too. And so uh, it's, a, it's a great uh, partnership uh, ministry. I wanted to go in just because I saw all the Kentucky Fried Chicken boxes. <laughs> I thought that would be great. I could, I could go there. Um, but at any rate. So uh, addiction is the perfect way for you to understand what your old nature is like. Uh, as uh, David experienced uh, some of the, the ways that he would question his own sin. Uh, and we all have that and we can see it in our families. And uh, this is a ministry uh, that's on the front line. Uh, it's taking ground in the kingdom. Uh, they need their armor. Uh, they need um, your help. And your help can be simply supporting um, the um, uh, ministry and give to it. And I should understand the church does, so that's fantastic. So I'm, I got on the board because of the value I saw in the partnership through uh, uh, people coming in with destroyed lives in court. Well, Judge, thank you. It's uh, wonderful to know we have a follower of Jesus on the court there, and we appreciate all your support and uh, encouragement for the Fair Haven home. You guys, this is a hard work, obviously. This isn't, this is, as he said, this is, this is warfare work. It's not easy. They're, they aren't all success stories, but there are enough to keep you guys going. Tell us some of the rewards you've seen along the way. Um, sitting right here in church, um, there's a couple of them. Just one person, you know, coming out of that darkness and giving their life to the Lord. Um, we find out actually that a lot of them don't even know Jesus until they come into the home and experience it through the devotion and the Bible study, and then they get baptized and, and start living that new life. And, and that's just so rewarding. Um, I don't think there is a greater reward than that's that. Awesome. Yeah, Candace, anything to add to that? You know, we see a lot of miracles. We see where you know God meets them right where where they're at. You know, meets them in that emotional. And since we've been there. We can help them and, and speak life into them and, and love them and, and relate to them. And I've been there. You're going to be okay. Well, we do. We see a lot of miracles. So, How are you guys and the Lord getting along these days? Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, um, we, uh, we have our own little Bible study every morning and, and we Friday night and Sunday here. And um, it's just a, it's, it's a great journey. Well, we want to thank you guys. It's a pleasure to have you here. We, we love having your Fairhaven folks come and join us. We hope you guys feel loved here. We hope our community reaches out to you. We hope you sense that. We want to be loving toward you. And thank you for being here. Thank you guys for what you've done. Godspeed. Keep up the good work. You know, it's one of these things where uh, if you knew John and Candace's story, you'd see, they shared a little, and Candace was pretty vulnerable this hour. I appreciate that. But to know where they came from, to see what God has done, it really does only happen by His grace and mercy. It only happens from His strength. It's not something that we can muster up on our own. Um, and David recognizes that. He recognizes that in this psalm. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But first, I just want to say one thing. Sometimes in these kind of a moment, in these kind of moments, it's easy for those of us who haven't wrestled with drug or alcohol addiction to kind of think about 
those people, those people certainly need restoration or repentance. Those folks, oh, they certainly need God's love and grace. And yet, what the scriptures say, what David says here, is that we're all those people. Some of our sin is out there. It's, it's in the court system. It's, it sits before a, a judge. But all of us have sin that may not be that public. It's equally as destructive. It's equally as scarring. It's equally as damning. It's equally as uh, treacherous to our hearts and souls. And that's why David makes such a plea here. That's why the Bible makes such a strong plea for us to turn from our sin towards God, to find the healing and help and repentance and forgiveness that only God offers. Um, David says something in the middle of the psalm I didn't talk about. It's actually my favorite verse. In verse 7 he says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And what he's saying here is, is that there's only one way for my sin to ultimately be cleansed. There's only one way for me to ultimately be delivered from the forces of sin and darkness and evil that this world wants to heap on me, that my flesh wants to continue to pull me in towards. Um, hyssop, by the way, is just a plant. I don't know if you know that, it's a plant. But in the Old Testament, it had a special meaning. It was the plant that the Hebrew people used to spread the blood on the door frames of their houses so that the angel of death would pass over and God could deliver them from slavery in Egypt to freedom. So what David is saying here is it's going to take a blood sacrifice for me to go from this marred sinful person to a person who's cleansed and purified and whiter than snow. You see, what your heart longs for, what your heart needs, what every human soul desires more than anything else is to be whiter than snow, to stand clean and pure before our Heavenly Father. And the Bible says that can only happen in one way, through the blood. The New Testament says that blood was shed by God himself on the cross. That Jesus came to earth, that he hung on the cross, that he gave his body and he shed his blood so that your bright red sin could be whiter than snow. That's why every single Sunday we go to the table to share this meal that reminds us that our strength, that our power, that our motivation, that our healing and cleansing and forgiveness does not come from us, but it comes only from God, only from Him. And so this morning we're going to come to the table. I just want you to think again this week about your areas of sin and struggle. Think about the people you're inviting into that place. Think about a Nathan or a potential Nathan in your life. Think about the sin that's underneath the sin. And then come to the table knowing that God wants to deliver you from that sin. That forgiveness that will cleanse you wider than snow is available. And if you need prayer today, we're going to offer it again this morning. There'll be people on the sides here to pray for you, in the back to pray for you. Again, you don't have to have some some wretched sin in your life right now to get prayer if you need healing or help or encouragement or a boost of faith or if you're looking at a challenge that that you want to invite God into come and have some folks from our congregation pray for you and lift you up to the Lord be encouraged by that we're just going to give you some time as we close the surface to come and enjoy the Lord's Supper to remember the cleansing power of the cross and the blood of Jesus and then 
to be ministered to, to be prayed for, to pray on your own. So take a minute, come to the table when you're ready and know that prayer is available. Father, you are God. You are Lord. We so often want to be God of our own lives or let something else kind of take over your slot, Lord. But today we, de- we declare again that we need you to be God in our lives. We need your blood to cleanse us and heal us and offer us freedom that we cannot get on our own. So as we come to this meal, Lord, we remember you. We remember your sacrifice. We remember your victory, the victory over sin and death that was won when you raised from that grave. We love you, Lord. We thank you. May our church be a place where sinners can come to find healing and hope and forgiveness and cleansing because we're all sinners, Lord, and we all need it. We love you, Jesus. We thank you, and we pray it in your name. Amen.